This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. We picked up a topic last Sunday that ties in with our faith and action pledging. Ties in with faith that requires action. Or, I like to say it this way, action that requires faith. You know, we have many people that have actions but have no faith behind them. They're acting but with no faith. And whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith doesn't please God. And so we have to, the Bible says, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. See if you're in the faith. That doesn't mean does it believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus, but there are many people believe, that believe in Jesus that are not acting by faith. So, today, I want to take us, last week we talked about how we can begin to neutralize a poverty spirit or a poverty mindset or the spirit of poverty. And if we neutralize that spirit, if we can neutralize that spirit in our lives, it unlocks a door, it unlocks a key to us moving into prosperity. So one side of the coin is dealing with the negative or dealing with the aspect of the enemy But the other side of the coin is believing that God desires to prosper us, that God desires us to move into realms of prosperity. My understanding with most Christians is that the harder of the two is that they don't have so much of a problem believing that we can bind the powers of darkness, but we really struggle with the idea that God wants to prosper us. And then when we do think God wants to prosper us, we think somehow it's by magic. We think it's going to be by, I, I don't know how people think God's going to prosper them. You know, that somehow you don't have to study, you don't have to read, you don't have to pray, you don't have to equip yourself. It's just that somehow, I don't know, maybe a little puppy dog runs down the aisle with a, bo- with a bag of money in its mouth and praise the Lord, the bills of the church are paid. But that's not how it works. God leads us into prosperity and through your hard work, through your labor, through your diligence, through your faith, he leads you little by little, from faith to faith, from grace to grace, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, into that which he's called you to be, into that which he's called you to do, and your dominion and your strength become stronger. Even the children of Israel didn't conquer all their enemies in one day. In fact, 31 kings had to be fought. And then Joshua stopped. And he says, but there are still many more battles to be fought. Many more battles to be won. This is ongoing. There will never be a day in your life or in my life that you have arrived. And if you ever come to that day... You are in grave danger because that's not how the kingdom operates. Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, who is a mentor and a friend of mine, made a few statements. He said, by use, you possess and gain. By disuse, you decline and lose. 
Many of us have come into a situation where we are no longer using, no longer growing, and we're making excuses. We're, we're blaming on the government. We're blaming it on all kinds of things. I want you to know something. Regardless of what's going on around you, do not let the circumstances around you determine what you do. Get up and make a difference. Get up and change the world. You are not limited by our government. You are not limited by the circumstances. You're only limited by what you believe and by what you think. And God is trying to break off those limitations, that spirit of poverty. He said, use it or lose it. I don't know if he quote, I don't know if that was originated from him, I doubt it. But that's the truth. We have to use what we have or we lose what we have. And finally, if you understand this, the other side of using and, or not using is hoarding. When you hoard something, it causes loss. But when you invest in life, when you invest things, it allows you to keep what you have and gain more because of the use. Those are good principles. Everything we teach in this church is by pattern and by principle. These are biblical principles. So with that in mind, let me launch out on today's message. Today's message has to do with a parable called the parable of the money managers. Now, you won't find that in your Bible because that's not what it says in the Bible in your headings. But those headings were made by scholars. They weren't written by Jesus. They were written by scholars. And... Uh, sometimes I think you have to be careful what isn't really the Bible. It's just a convenience so you can find that chapter heading in your Bible. Two of Jesus's better known parables relate to the subject of stewardship. Stewardship. Do you all know what stewardship is? Stewardship is when you have something entrusted to you that you oversee on behalf of another. Everything in the kingdom that has to do with our finances is that of stewardship. I have a series back there called Christianomics. And I, I wish every one of you would get that series. I wish you'd study it. Because I can't tell you how much counseling that I've done with people that violate every principle of good financial stewardship. And then they wonder why God didn't help them. Well, it wasn't God. It was you, sweetheart. It was God trying to help you, but you broke every rule in the book, every biblical rule and every natural rule. And if you'll ever learn how to do it right, God wants to bring prosperity to you. Christianomics. Maybe some of you should look into that. So these two stories of stewardship, how to steward what God gives you, one is found in Matthew, the 25th chapter, and it's known as the parable of the talents. That's what it says in the, in the margin. The other is found in Luke 19 and is referred to as the parable of the minas. M-I-N-A-S, minus. Now, we often read these passages, and when we do, we think that they're parallel stories. We think that they're telling the exact same story, but this isn't the case. Jesus tells two different stories with similar purpose behind it, and all those are, there's a great deal of overlap on these two stories. Each story stands on its own. The titles we see in our Bibles can be misleading, the parable of the talents, the parable of the minus. That's why I entitled this message, The Parable of the Money Managers. Because it's really not about the talent nor the minor. If we look at the role of money management in the world today, the church 
especially our seminaries and our Bible schools, give little or no attention to this subject. That's why so many pastors are terrible managers. It's not only in pastoring, don't get me wrong. That's why so many doctors are terrible managers. They can cut you, carve you, stitch you, fix you, medicate you, but they have no, many of them are terrible when it comes to managing anything. Any doctors in the house? Can I get an amen? Yeah, it's true. I, I, I deal with a lot of medical people. I deal with a lot of doctors. I deal with a lot of people. Some of the worst things you can do is let doctors run a hospital. Because they're not managers. Now, you have management people that run hospitals, but so it is in life. Pastors, often pastors shouldn't run the management of the money. That's why we have financial committees. That's why we have advisory boards of our finance people in the church that help advise me even. I'm better than the average pastor when it comes to managing money and understanding wealth management, but even so, I don't trust on my own understanding. I'm seeking the counsel of wise managers. Boy, this is a tough crowd this morning. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Amen. Somehow, in our minds, we have relegated the financial management situation to the mountain of business and not the mountain of religion. And that just keeps feeding the spirit of poverty that has crept into the body of Christ. If you're afraid of something, you don't deal with it. That's why many pastors find it hard to talk about prosperity. In fact, many pastors, when they stand on the pulpit to receive an offering or they stand on the pulpit to talk about tithing or giving, they're so in need themselves, they're so poverty-stricken that it sounds like they're asking for an offering for themselves. Would you please give today so that I can pay my bills? No, the truth of the matter is, I will never ask you to help me with my financial needs, although I do receive a stipend from the church, or I receive from the church. That is not where I get my source. You are not my source, nor are you the source of any man of God's needs. But you are a tool that God may use to help meet our needs. But the truth of the matter, my job is to tell you the truth about money, to tell you the truth about finances, regardless of whether my needs are met through you or not. The truth stands, and the truth stands for all of us on the same footing and the same foundation. But if you are a poverty-stricken pastor, you're going to preach poverty to your people. Now, there are four links that are essential in wealth management, in managing or in uh, breaking this spirit of poverty off the faith. And I, I'm going to go into the, I may go into this in greater detail during action. But if we're going to see a great wealth transfer, we're going to need to have providers, managers, distributors, and field marshals. And I could get into each of those, but the truth of the matter is, where the church and where the world is weak is in managers. People that know how to manage wealth, manage finances. We have people that provide wealth. In fact, even in the world today, we have some great philanthropists. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But do you know what their struggle is? They really can't find people that can manage this stuff. We have the United Nations. 
We know that the United Nations can't manage anything. Because at their own records, they say that huge, huge amounts of that money goes towards administration. And only a trickle, trickle, trickle gets down to the actual need. We, we know that. We know governments can't manage because we watch what they do with their money. They have huge amounts of income. Of course, those are waning and getting smaller because you can only tax people so much before you kill the goose that lays the golden egg. But the fact of the matter is, the money they have, nobody trusts that they're managing them, and they don't account for it. They say they do, but they don't. Because those accounts are already five years in arrear. And by the time they have to make somebody account for it, they're long gone. It's not real accounting. It's just a ruse to give the impression of accounting. They are not real managers of wealth. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about the managers. We're not bad at distributors. The church has been a good distributor of, of things. And we have field marshals. There's guys out on the field that are doing incredible things. I think of Winnie Kariawangwa. Winnie is in our prisons on the field. My goodness, that woman, I, I want to carry her Bible when she stands before Jesus. Amen? I think of all the people that are out serving. Pastor Norman and, and Dennis now, who are going into our schools. I mean, that's amazing. Tommy and, 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 and Lincoln and, and, and Milton that are going into the red couch. And even Lincoln and his team that are serving our children right now. These, these people, they're good on the ground. We've got field marshals. They can manage, but they need the funds. They need the money. We need to equip them. Do you understand what I'm saying? So today, I'm afraid that the level of managers is weakest in the body of Christ. If we pay close attention to the parables of the money managers, I believe that we can, that God will strengthen us in this weak link. So, if we're going to have a great wealth transfer, transfer in preparation for it, I think God wants to have us learn something. Now, I have two lengthy passages of Scripture, and I'd like you to study them with me. And you may even want to open your own Bible today and say, okay, let's look at these, because there may be some things that you're going to see. Sometimes I know how you guys are. You, I read that. I know what that says. Do you really? We're going to break these two passages of Scripture down. So Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. We're going to start there. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And it says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who received five bags of gold brought forth another five. By the way, this is the story of the talents. This is the NIV version, but in, in the King James and other versions, it's the talents. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
The man with the two bags of gold also came. And master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Actually, I think this is the story of the Minas. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not seeded. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. Here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that I would have, when I returned, I would have had received it with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. Now listen to this. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw away that worthless servant, or throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then we have the other story. This is the story of the ten minas, or the minas. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 26. Luke 19, verses 11 through 26. Says while they were listening to this, they went on to tell them a parable. He went, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent out a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take care or charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it. I have laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I would have or I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away from him. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is a very powerful passage of Scripture. Both of these are two stories, 
two different denominations of money. They're two different stories. The traditional view of these parables, the parable of the talents and the parable of the minutes, can detract or distract us from the point that Jesus is trying to make. You see, in the original word, in the Greek, the word talenton, T-A-L-E-N-T-O-N, talenton, which we get the word talent from, refers to a measure of money, like the U.S. dollar, the British pound, or the South African rand. Those are real currencies. They have a value. They're a measure of real money, okay? But we use the English word talent not in reference to money, but today somehow in the church it's crept in and we say talent is a special or natural ability, an aptitude, or in Christian circles, a spiritual gift. For us, a talented person may or may not control any notable wealth. Many today have neglected the talent as simply something that symbolizes a personal gift or an ability. Not even considering the context or the text of the scripture where the word talent in Greek directly refers to money, not to some special gift that you have. In fact, most sermons preached on this subject exhort believers to be good stewards of their personal talents, things like hospitality or teaching or working with the children or singing or choir or evangelism or working or, or, or bookkeeping. Or, there's a thousand things that you can be involved in and take good care of that talent. Make sure you don't bury your talent. Whatever that spiritual gift is. Supposedly these talents are from God and he expects us to multiply and not bury them in the ground. Now that's the traditional point of view. How many times have you heard a message? Don't bury your talent. Don't bury that talent now. Don't bury that talent. God gave you that talent. You're a good bookkeeper. You should be helping. That's true. I'm not saying we shouldn't use that. I'm not saying that's not part of it. But the actual word talent has nothing to do with your giftings. It has to do with money. A talent was a, was a denomination of money. So let me just talk about this from a more biblical and apostolic point of view. These two parables are about managing money. Now, when I studied, scholars very... I mean, there's a wide variation on the consideration of what the worth of a mina is or the worth or the value of a talent is as compared to modern times. And since there is no general consensus, I chose to follow the leading of Dr. Peter Wagner. And he estimates that in today's economy, the value or the value of a mina would be equivalent to about $10,000 per mina. Okay? And that the value of a talent would weigh in at about a million dollars. Now, I think the first thing that comes to mind is the huge difference between those two amounts. How many of you know there's a big difference between a million and 10,000? So that proves to me that these passages in Luke and Matthew are not parallel passages of Scripture. 
In fact, the truth is that even in today's economy, in today's world, there are some money managers that are more comfortable or known to be more comfortable managing smaller amounts of money. I know some investors in this country that will take your $10,000 and they will invest it for you. They will manage it for you. They're a money manager and they'll get an in, a pretty good return on it. But their minimum amount that they'll invest is $10,000. I also know that there are markets in the world where the minimum amount is a million or more. They won't even look at $10,000. Unless you have a million dollars, they don't even talk to you. Did you know that those markets exist? Whatever the respective values may be, I want you to understand that the focus of both of these parables is obviously not on the money, the talents and the minus, but rather on what people do with money, what the money managers do with their money. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. He's talking to people that manage money. Now, I think that we can distill this down to the personal level. How do you manage your money for the kingdom? But I think it's on a much bigger scale. In the scope of a wealth transfer, if God begins to move large sums of money, are there anyone amongst us? Is there, are there any money managers? Are we even moving into that realm? Do we even train our children to move into this realm? Or have we relegated it to a poverty thinking that says, if you do this, you are evil. If you do this kind of money management, you must be crooked. If you do this kind of money management, it's really not of the kingdom of God. And so don't do that. Just tap your neighbor and say, I think his preaching is better than your amening this morning. So let me just try to break this story down and see if we can't see some, if we can't merge the similarities between the storylines. So, in both stories, there are four individuals. The owner, or in this case, the CEO of the business, whichever one, he's the owner or the CEO. This person is obviously a person of wealth. Then we have employee A, employee B, and employee C. So let's just talk a little bit about the owner. The owner, first of all, he has a business of some kind. And it must be successful because he's a man of considerable means. He has lots of money. He's wealthy. And number two, he wants to make a profit. He has money and he wants that money to be profitable. How many of you know this is normal and acceptable? It's a desire of most business people. Now, are there any business people here that do not want to make a profit? I rest my case. It's a normal desire. Although that is contrary to some preachers and preaching that are inspired by a spirit of poverty. But his vehicle for making these profits is the financial market. How do we know that? Well, because both Matthew and Luke mention the word trading. Let me explain. In Matthew 25, verses 16 and 17, it says, Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received 
two gained two more also. This word traded is a very interesting word. It comes from a Greek word, ergazomai, E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-A-I, ergazomai. It means to work or to trade, and it is the generic term in Greek for doing business. So when you tell your wife, I'm going to ergazomai, that just means you're going to work. Luke 19, verse 15, it says, And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. By trading. This is a different word. This is a stronger Greek word than the word ergazomai. This is the word diapragmetoamai. Big word. And it means, it's a term for, it's a term from the financial world, and it means to gain by trading. To gain by trading. So these are specific words to describe specific things that people did with their minus and their talents. Now financial trading may take many forms. I don't know which form might be in view here because the Bible doesn't say but I would suffice to say that I would probably think it was what we call foreign exchange or currency exchange. Historically, currency exchange was the original form of trading that dates all the way back to the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Now, there are people today that think that exchanging currencies or working in currency exchange or this kind of trading is like gambling. They say, oh... You're just risking everything. But the fact is, that's not the truth. The tr fact is that there are laws and there are rules that govern this kind of trading. This kind of trading has been around for a very, very long time. In fact, I heard one prominent trader say this may be the second world's, the world's second oldest profession. In Jesus' day, foreign exchange was practiced. We know that. Okay? The story of the money changers in the temple is an example of Jesus correcting something. People were trading Roman and Greek coins as they would come to the temple. They would exchange Roman and Greek currencies for the Tyrian coin. The Tyrian coin was the only currency that was accepted in the temple. Jesus never condemned the practice of currency exchange, nor the practice of selling doves for temple sacrifice. His reason for cleansing the temple and for, was because of the corruption that had crept into the temple grounds. If you come with us to Israel, you're going to find out that there was a place outside of the temple walls where all this trading was designed to take place. And then there was a door that would take you into the temple and the temple mount. But what had happened was, like so many other things, people began to move themselves and reposition themselves in the temple itself. And then God says, you've made my temple a den of thieves. The purpose of the temple was not for trading. The purpose of the temple was for worship. He says, but you've made it a place of trading instead of a place of worship and a house of prayer. 
But God and Jesus was not against the trading as long as it didn't take place in the temple. By the way, the church is not a marketplace. That's why we don't sell oil. That's why we don't sell things. And where do we sell things? We have a bookstore. and We sell things that will help improve you. But we don't force you to buy those things. We offer them to you. We believe that those books and study is good for you. But I promise you, if there's any holy oil or holy water or holy anything in that bookstore, there may be some anointing oil, but it's, it's not magical. It's biblical. Anoint the sick with oil, the Bible says. But see, we can get so crazy that we go overboard and we go outside of biblical things and we turn the house of God into a merchandising mark instead of a house of prayer and praise. Amen. So, the owner, let's talk, we're still talking about the owner. Number four, the owner or the CEO of the business seems to know his employees' potential. In Matthew, it says he entrusts different amounts to his employees, each according to his ability. Each according to his ability. Five million to one, two million to another, and one million to the third. In Luke, they all received the same amount, $10,000. It's a lower figure, but they all get the same amount. He commands them to trade, number five. He commands them, I want you to trade. He tells them, do business till I come. Do business till I come. That word translated do business is pragmatuamai in the Greek. And it means specifically, do financial trading until I come. Number six, this CEO takes his hands off. Because he knows the abilities of his employees... After providing them the necessary resources, he leaves them to do whatever it is that they need to do. The employees, not the master, are responsible for the result of their own activities. Did you get that? Let me just take a little sidestep here. I am shocked at how African businesses are run for the most part. The CEO hires all kinds of people who hire people, who hire people. And the CEO is down there checking everybody. And no decisions can be made without the CEO ticking the box. So nobody makes decisions. And when the decisions they do make don't count because the CEO can change them. Then you hire professionals to do jobs for you that you don't have the skill nor the talent to do, but then you weigh in on it and say, no, no, I don't like that. Well, then why do you hire people? You may as well just do it yourself. And no wonder we can't get anything done. We've never empowered anybody to make a decision. And then if somebody did make a decision, he's afraid to make the decision because... Of course, the only person that can make a decision is the CEO. It might be good for some of you CEOs just to go on a long journey. 
and actually entrust something and see what kind of people you really have. Anyway, that's enough of that. That's just a sidestep. Employee A. Employee A. Let's talk about him for a minute. In Matthew, employee A traded his five million and made another five million, returning ten million to the owner. So his gain was a hundred percent. Is that right? Now, in the book of Luke, with the minus, the employee traded his ten thousand and made a hundred thousand. Returning 110,000 to the owner, his gain was 1,000%. Are you following the math here? The guys with the talents, the, the millionaires, the, million, the guys who were investing millions made a 100% return. The guys with the 10,000s are making a 1,000% return. Employee B. In Matthew, employee B traded his $2 million and made another $2 million, returning $4 million to the owner. His gain was 100%. In Luke, employee B traded his $10,000, made $50,000, returning $60,000 to the owner. His gain was 500%. So we have some that make 100%, some that make 1,000%, and here this guy made 500%. Are you following the logic? So it's interesting to observe that the financial return for the employees, employees A, employees B, in the two variables was a low of 100% and a high of 1,000% in their return on investment. This is a per annum return. Although the parable of the CEO says that the CEO was gone on a long trip, nothing in the period of of time or in the scripture would indicate that it would be longer than a year. In fact, if you study the movings of people back then, a year would have been actually a very long trip, longer than most people take. But a year would have been probably the outside most. Each of these employees, A and B, were commended as good and faithful servants. Now we come to employee number C. Employee C was not a good and faithful servant. In fact, in Matthew, employee C buried his million dollars. In Luke, the employee C wrapped it in a handkerchief, his 10,000 minas, and hid it. And they both returned their boss's money intact, but neither one used it in trading, as he had been commanded. Both of these employees made a huge mistake. You see, because when their bosses returned... They labeled them as nothing more than wicked and lazy. So what was the problem with both of the employees, the C, employee C? Well, it was fear. Fear of two things. Fear of the boss and fear of taking risk. Fear of the boss and fear of taking risk. All successful financial traders well know that there are two psychological red flags intrinsically involved in trading. Fear and greed. Fear and greed. Succumbing to either fear or greed can quickly take you down as a trader. We see this all the time. Bernie Madoff. Anybody know who Bernie Madoff is? He was the number one crook. He crooked everybody. Steven Spielberg right down to the, the grandma. 
He took billions of dollars from people and he got greedy. He was greedy. But we know that greed and fear are what take traders out. But I'm going to indicate something to you too. Greed and fear will take you out no matter what level of finance you're operating in. Jesus deals with the greed factor in other of his parables. Lots of his parables deal with the greed factor. But in these parables, he's dealing with the fear factor. The fear factor. Employee C succumbs to fear in both of these stories. The fear of the boss was irrational. It didn't make sense. Why do I say that? Because employees A and B know this boss just as well as employee C does. And they're not afraid of him. So why are two employees not afraid, but the third employee is frightened of the boss? See, I don't think that this CEO was anything different than most CEOs. He was just a normal businessman who wanted to make a profit. There's nothing bad said said about him in these parables. But employee C was obviously convinced that his boss was bad, that he was a bad man. In fact, he accused him of reaping where he had not sown and collecting where he had not deposited. Ah, how irrational is that? How can anyone reap where they haven't sown? And how can you collect where you haven't made a deposit? Let's just try that. Let's just go down to, well, I don't know, maybe Zimra can do that. Maybe, the, maybe our banks do that a little bit. They collect, where, they collect our deposits <laughs> and give us bond notes. But, and that is unjust. But, the fact of the matter is, this is not logical. And he accuses him. So the first of these accusations invokes the realm of farming. The second speaks of world, the world of banking. Why didn't this bother employees A and B? Because they were expert traders. They understood how one makes a profit by trading. How many of you know that trading and farming is different? How many of you know that trading and banking are different? Like it or not, in financial trading, when you make a good trade, you get the money from somebody who made a bad trade. That's how it works. When you make a good trade, that means somebody made a bad trade in trading. We trade commodities. You try to buy low and sell high. But sometimes you buy low and the market crashes and so you sell lower. You just made a bad deal. You had a bad trade. But tomorrow, you hope the market is up, and you trade again, and you make some money. It's called trading. It's called taking a risk. So what we're actually doing is we're collecting what someone else has deposited. And those are simply the rules of the trading game. And the owner wasn't crooked. He was playing by the trading rules But he wasn't playing by farming rules, nor was he playing by banking rules. By trading, you can achieve returns of 100% and even 1,000%. But in order to do it, you must take risks. 
Now, what am I saying? Am I telling the church to all become traitors? That's not the point. The point is we're trying to look at these men that were traitors, and we're trying to look at what would happen in the markets if a great wealth transfer takes place. In each of these parables, we also see that employee C's fear prevented, prevented him from ever taking a risk. He didn't even try to secure a plan B. The owner comes back and says, hey, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers so that at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. In other, in other words, here's what he's saying. Even though the banks would only give me, I don't know, what are the interest rates today? How much can you make on money in the bank? Hmm? How much? Eight to ten percent? Oh, we've got a disagreement here. That was a banker that told me that. More or less. Who says we can make more than that in the bank? Oh, who says less? Less, okay. I, I was you. So let's say between five and twenty percent, okay? Even though this man might have been able to, by, by plan B, could have made only 5 to 20% instead of the 100% or the 1,000%, making that choice would have been virtually risk-free. Now, here's my question. We really don't know what would have happened if employee C had opened the bank account instead of hiding the money. But my guess is this, that he probably would have been demoted and chastised, but probably not fired outright. Now, suppose that employee C had taken the risk on the money and lost it. Now, this is beyond what we see in the parable. But it could be within reason to imagine that the owner would not have been nearly as harsh with him had he done that. Because the inherent position in every trade is the concept of risk. It's the possibility of failure. It's the possibility of loss. Every experienced trader, in fact, I think every experienced businessman that's ever taken a risk has taken losses as well as gains. It just happens. It would have been unusual if employees A and B hadn't taken their share of losses on their way to their ultimate gains. I don't think they made every trade good. They traded. Some good, some bad, some good, some bad, some good, some bad, but they came out on top. It's not magic. And see, sometimes we want to think it's just magic. Ooh, a 100% return. For what? For risking. A 1,000% return for risking. Anyway... In any case, the sad fate of employee number C is vividly stated in the Message Bible. Listen to what it says. In Matthew 25, verse 28, in the Message Bible, it says, Take the thousand and give it to the one who risked the most. And get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. This play it safe. Oh, I just love that, don't you? Get rid of this play it safe guy. I, I, you know, I, I want you to understand something. What we're reading here, what we're trying to uncover, is a very important insight into God's attitude towards fiscal responsibility. 
he strongly dislikes idle wealth. God does not like idle wealth. He doesn't like idle money. In fact, there's a story in the Bible that talks about a man who builds more barns for his grain, and he's criticized because he's amassing idle wealth. See, money is not to be an end in itself. It's to be a tool that you put to use for the purposes of the kingdom of God. For the purposes of something much greater. The mistake that employee C made was to safeguard idle money rather than to use it to do good. Now, let me qualify this. I'm not saying if you have a savings account, it's wrong. I'm not saying if, saying if you have some money set aside that it's wrong. But what I'm saying is when you begin to hoard, when you begin to trust in that money more than you trust in God, when that money becomes your source and, ooh, I, I'm safe now. No, that money will take wings and fly away, I can promise you. That money is not safe if you're trusting in money. But if you're trusting in God, God also gives you wisdom to have barns. He says, I will fill your barns. I will fill your vats. Your barns are your bank accounts. Your vats are, your, are, are, are the sources where you store your income. Let me tell you something. God's not against you having. He's just against you hoarding. And he's against you hiding it and not investing it. He's against you operating in fear. How about, about a little, how about how would you like a little good news before we close today? That's so much, so much for the bad news about employee number C. Now for the good news about employees A and B. Their trading resulted in four things, four good results. Number one, they took risks and they achieved financial returns. We saw that. 100%, between 100% and 1,000% return. Number two, the boss was pleased because it was the boss who encouraged them to take risks, to take his money and invest it and trade it in the first place. The boss had told them, go do business, go trade my money until I return. Number three, they received a good commission. Employees A and employees B received promotions. They received good-paying positions for their successful trading. In fact, the boss said, good job. Look at this in, in, in the Message Bible. I love it. Luke 19, 17. The boss said, good servant. Great work. Because you were trustworthy in this small job, I'm going to make you a governor of ten towns. Employee, employee A received ten new streams of income. One from each town. Employee B received five new streams of income. One from each town. On top of that, employee A got an added bonus because he got employee C's idle money. See, in Matthew, the commission was even greater. I love this. The boss addresses both employee A and employee B when he said, enter into the joy of your Lord. What does this really mean? Well, it means that they were able to become just as prosperous as their boss. Namely, they were promoted to become partners with him. Here, the same verse is translated in the Message Bible. Look at this. Matthew 25, verse 21. 
Good work. You did your job well. From now on, you'll be my partner. How many of you know that a partnership is a pretty nice reward? But did you know this is what happens in real business, in real life? People that are faithful with somebody else's money and make them a lot of money, if you make me a 1,000% return, I want you as my partner. In fact, from now on, if you can make that kind of return, it's 50-50. We're 50-50. You keep making that return. I make 50% using my money, and you make 50% using my money. On 1,000%? That's not a bad deal, is it? Are you following my logic here? And finally, number four, they ended up with prosperity. The Bible says, for everyone who has or who trades well, more will be given, but, and he will have abundance, and he will have abundance. That word abundance is a very strong word in the Greek. It, mean, it's, it comes from a, a word perusio, and it literally means superabundance. That means enough plus plenty to spare. It means over and above. That's what God has for us. That's God's desire. See, why am I teaching you this? Because we have been so trapped in a mindset that God doesn't want us to have abundance. And then we've gone about trying to illegitimately achieve abundance through some kind of weird miracle thing that we forgot that this is trading, it's risk-taking, and you may not risk it a million dollars, you may not risk it $10,000, but you know what? And you should never risk your house, you should never risk your, your immediate living, but you should be able to say, listen, I think I can risk, and you begin trading. You begin to do what God wants you to do. And for some of us, for some of you, you've got to start thinking about what if a great wealth transfer comes to the kingdom of God? Do we have anyone that can manage this kind of wealth? Do we have anyone that can manage millions, billions, let alone millions? There's not many people I know that can manage a million dollars. Really manage it and increase it. I've seen many manage it. It's like the guy who told me, if you want to become a millionaire, be a billionaire and buy a farm. You'll soon be a millionaire. Some of you will get that after lunch. So, what are the lessons I want us to learn out of the parable of the money changers? First of all, I believe that we're living in a season. I think we're living in a time that will be prophetically characterized by this great transfer of wealth. I think this transfer of wealth is going to be moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And it's going to transform the way things are done, not only in the kingdom, but on earth. Our kingdom role in handling and distribution of this wealth will become an awesome responsibility. These parables of Jesus are simply here to help us maintain a biblical perspective of our assignment. You see, things I want you to understand is, biblically, Jesus had a positive attitude towards trading in the financial markets. He wasn't saying this is wrong. He had a positive attitude. In fact, he commended it. He, he said, why is it that people... He, he, he's, he's pointing it out. 
And he's liking it unto the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God is like the CEO who wants his money well managed in his absence. In Matthew 25, 14, this is what it says. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is like a man who travels to a far country. See, the kingdom of God has to do this trading. And God needs his servants to deliver his goods to, to trade them. Where are these servants? Who are these servants? Number three, the rate of return in the parables is notable. Namely, between 100% and and 1,000%. And this is far more than the measly 5 to 20% that we expect from today's financial managers. Jesus was knowledgeable enough to know about trading money. He wasn't using hyperbole. He wasn't using hypothetical numbers. He's using realistic figures. Financial markets today that are not open to the common people, to you and I for the most part, but I've met people that deal in financial markets where they talk of returns like this. I met some wealth fund managers who were making well over 100% return on their money. They're hedge fund managers. They have to make more money. How do you think these banks build these magnificent buildings? They have to have some pretty big profits to own those kind of buildings. Come on, guys. Think about this. So is this just for the world or is this for the kingdom of God as well? How many of you are getting a little bit of cognizant Cognitive dissidence right now. Pastor, we don't want to hear about this. You're making me uncomfortable. I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to have enough. I'm just trying to barely get by. If I could just have enough. I talked about that last week. Finally, two more points and I'll close. When wealth is transferred for the purpose of discipling nations... That is the social transformation of nations. It cannot be handled carelessly. We can't bury it in the ground. We can't deposit it in the bank. It's got to be used to bring about the extension of the kingdom and be multiplied many times over. And when it comes to our responsibility for handling wealth, the wealth of the kingdom. I don't know about you, but for me, I want to hear God say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. See, I, I tell you, I, I, I've come to a realization that if I amassed a ton of wealth for myself and I never did what I was supposed to do for the kingdom, I've missed the whole purpose of my life. I think the Apostle Paul said it this way. He says, I've learned to abound, and I've learned to be abased. He says, but in every state that I'm in, I've learned to be content. See, Paul was never moved by worry or fear of anything. Paul was the greatest risk taker I've ever seen. If you read Paul, he risked. He didn't lack finances. 
11 o'clock. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. We glorify you at this 11 o'clock hour. Seven times a day, we choose to lift our hands in submission to the kingdom of God. May you be honored and glorified in our midst. Amen. Today, my close is this. As much as I am concerned about the greed that's in the earth, I think my greatest concern is the fear. One of my greatest concerns in Africa is how many of our people operate in fear of the boss. They never really get to exercise anything to where they're growing. They only do what they're told. That fear is crippling Africa. Our ministers are in fear of our president. It's true. Go talk to any minister about making a decision, and it always has to go to the president's office. I'm not saying that, but that's how it operates. It just goes all the way to the top. We, have, we micromanage from the top. We will never change Africa. We will never change our continent if we don't manage those things. We need to empower one another. That's why many years ago I told some of you, I said, go start your own companies. Why? Because you become the boss. But then don't stifle the people under you. Help them make real decisions. Grow them up. Why? Because there's going to be thousands of companies. When Zimbabwe comes right, there's thousands of opportunities. But who's going to lead the change? Who's going to be there? The ones that have to have somebody tell them what to do or the ones that learn how to do it? They may not work with you the rest of your life. You may groom them to a place that they say, hey, listen, would you release me? I'd like to start a business, not in competition to you. I'm not taking your business, but I see another opportunity. Can you release me into my opportunity? Well done, good and faithful servant. In fact, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's partner together. You've been so faithful for me. Let me partner. Let me finance you, and we'll be a partnership together. Oh, no, no, no. Here's what we do. Because we're greedy and we're full of fear, we make friends with the boss's contacts. And then behind the scenes, we go align ourselves with his enemy. We make friends of his enemy, and we steal his business so we can carve ourselves out a few dollars in our pocket, and then we curse ourselves the rest of our lives. Wealth managers, wealth managers, I don't care what level of wealth we're talking about. Yes, I'm talking about the ultimate. I'm talking about what happens if there's a wealth transfer. But what about your wealth? What about the excess income you have? What are you doing with it? Are you managing it? Are you eating it? Is it producing Are you making decisions? Are you waiting for somebody to tell you what to do with your money? Is anybody listening to me today? I know you'd rather have a message where I just tell you, go be blessed, just pray, and it'll all come. It's not going to come to you that way. And you can pray until Jesus comes back. But if you can't manage what he gives you, you will have nothing. And if you're not making decisions about life, you have nothing. 
become a manager. You may not manage billions or millions or even ten thousands, but today start managing what's in your hand. Exercise. If you manage little, you'll get more. If you manage more, you'll get much. Come on, church. Is this an encouraging word? Do you think there's a wealth transfer coming? Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.